This is Priya Malik, Managing Director at Step Global Group. And this is Abtin Baziri, Managing Director at Brevet Capital Management. Welcome to the Investment Migration Report. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to be investment, tax, or other professional advice or a recommendation to buy or refrain from buying any security, product, or service. The views and opinions expressed are our own and do not represent the views or opinions of our employers. Good morning and welcome to the Investment Migration Report. Uh, today we have as our special guest, Aaron Grau, who is the Executive Director uh, of IIUSA, the EB5 Industries nonprofit trade organization. This morning actually couldn't be any more timely for, for our program or on our podcast, uh, as Aaron uh, um, could you know, weigh in on the, on the uh, federal lawsuit that just came in and was, um, was ruled yesterday in the California federal court. So with that, Aaron, welcome. And uh, maybe we just jump right into it. Maybe Aaron, uh, tell, us, tell us about the, the lawsuit. You don't waste any time. Um, well, I mean, I, we could start at the very beginning or we could start at the very end and sort of backfill. I'm not sure how, you, how, you'd, like to, how you'd like to proceed. Um, I mean, the ruling came out uh, late yesterday afternoon, um, Pacific time, maybe around six o'clock or so, uh, that uh, the Bering Regional Center which was the plaintiff in a case against uh, the Department of Homeland Security, uh, won its case. And the federal district court vacated the regulations that uh, most recently changed the administration of the EB-5 Regional Center Program. Most importantly, within those regulations were methods by which targeted employment areas were defined or are defined. And of course, the investment amounts. Um, The regulations raised the investment amounts from $500,000 in a targeted investment area to $900,000. Now that the regulations have been vacated, um, the the investment amounts will drop back to $500,000 unless um, there is a stay Uh, that the defendant, the federal government, applies for uh, a stay with the federal district court and it's granted, Um, or the the federal government uh, otherwise appeals the decision, or uh, they do neither and they simply um, follow the court's order, which was to take action on the regulations, presumably as, as it sees fit and obviously within within the parameters of the law, specifically uh, the Administrative Procedures Act. So the order specifically remanded the, the matter back to the Department of Homeland Security for it to do what it needs to do. And that's the big question right now. That's the big question. Notwithstanding the possible stay um, in, the, in the Ninth Circuit uh, at the federal, at the district court level, the question is now that the Department of Homeland Security has it back, What's their next step? Um, I've spoken with folks at DHS um, during the litigation, and of course, they were not able to comment uh, much at all on the litigation, and I, I would have not expected them to. But what they did tell me was they said, Aaron, look, we support the program and we support the regulations. Take that for what it is. Um, at the time, I took it as meaning that they would um, take every step possible to 
keep the regulations as they were promulgated and finalized back in November of 2019. I still feel that way, uh, but as we spoke earlier, Abteen, um, my opinion and five bucks will get you a cup of coffee. So, uh, you know, we could we could jump into the weeds, I suppose, on the arguments that were in the case um, and why the court ruled the way it did. I mean, I, I I mentioned to some of our board members earlier this morning. I said I. The order says exactly what I thought it would say, assuming the court would would rule in this way. I mean, her, her logic was, I understand her logic. I mean, uh, it made sense. Um, to what ends the ruling uh, impacts everything is, un, is undetermined, because like I said, we just don't know what DHS is going to do now. So, Aaron, uh, by the way, I don't think $5 these days gets you a cup of coffee, you know, probably at least $7. But, uh, but I wanted to uh, ask you, I mean, I think, uh, you know, I've gotten hundreds of emails from last night and this morning and hundreds of messages on, you know, WeChat, WhatsApp, every medium you could think of from our investors, agents, lawyers, everyone asking, what does this mean? The, is this is investment amount 500000 today? Can we go accept $500,000 investments today? What happens to those investors that invested in 900000 Lots of questions, lots of uh, stuff, but maybe I think we'll, we'll, we'll kind of in an organized fashion jump into those, you know, one at a time. I think it's important to, to mention, you know, what, what, what I think a lot of um, our listeners and a lot of uh, stakeholders in EB-5 maybe may not understand is, you know, the different uh, parts of the government and what, uh, you know, what, uh, you know, what uh, authority they have. You know, obviously, the Department of Homeland Security is an agency under the executive branch and U.S., Citizenship and Immigration Services is under the Department of Homeland Security, so that's all in the executive branch. And then you have Congress, you have Senate, and you have the House. Uh, what does this mean? I mean, does this re uh, does this invalidation of the rule reauthorizes the program, or is there still a reauthorization that is needed for the program to survive? Maybe if you could just weigh in on that. I don't think that the ruling will impact <clears throat> the legislative process. As you pointed out, I mean, in the United States, those are two very distinct branches, the, the judiciary and, and the legislative. Um, and we have a very real, frankly, uh, some have described it as an existential date in front of us of June 30th. That is the date that the regional center program expires. If that were to happen, there are other unknowns that I think are driving a lot of anxiety as well, whether those unknowns, um, uh, we just don't know, we just don't know what they are. So, I mean, we're, we're working very hard to avoid trying to figure that out. We want to make sure that the program is reauthorized by, by the 30th. So the legislative process that's underway right now um, is um, intended to avoid that expiration. Uh, interestingly, it, it's worth noting, today is the 23rd, I should know that, the Senate adjourns tomorrow around noon, maybe one o'clock or so, depending on their business, on the 24th. If the Senate doesn't act in order to reauthorize the program by tomorrow, um, we're in trouble, uh, I have to be honest with you, because we have the Senate that has to reauthor. We have the Senate that has to pass the bill, and then we have the House of Representatives that has to pass the bill. If the Senate both have to do it, both both bills have to be exactly the same, and then the President signs it into law, and, and we're okay. Um, however, the Senate only has until 
tomorrow midday to to pass the bill and then push it over to the House side. If the Senate doesn't act in time, um, it will adjourn and it will not reconvene until well after June 30th. So there won't be a reauthorization. Um, so today's a today's a pretty timely and pretty topical day for uh, for us to be talking. Um, but but going back to maybe a part of your original question, the legislative branch and the judicial branch um, they rarely cross paths, and I and I don't I personally don't see the ruling today or the ruling yesterday in the Bering case having much of an impact on the process that's already underway in this House and the Senate. Um, there was a time when I thought uh, a ruling from the Barron case would have impacted that process, but that time long since passed, um, the bills were drafted, they've been introduced, and now they're already being considered through what's called a hotline process. So it allowed some confusion, it allowed some anxiety, I don't think technically it actually impacts the process, though. So, Aaron, for, for our listeners that may not be familiar with the you know, legal procedures in the United States, do the executive branch or the judicial branch have the power to re-extend the program or reauthorize it? No, no. Only, only the legislature can do that, um, Congress. Senate and the House, and they have to basically uh, approve it in a um, unanimous bill that, that's identical, right? Right. Right. The House can't pass a bill that's different from the Senate. They have to be exactly the same. Um, and then the president has to sign it into law. Sorry, I've been monopolizing uh, the, the entire time. My amazing co-host, she has some questions for you. So Priya, I, right. I um, You did mention the hotline process, mm -hmm. and I wanted to know if you could just elaborate on that a little bit more for our listeners who might not be familiar with how that works. Sure. So um, in the US Senate, there are essentially two ways to pass a bill. You can either um, put the bill through what is called regular order, in, in which case um, typically there is uh, an agreement on debate on the Senate floor, uh, amendments are offered on the Senate floor. This is all after things have gone through committee, of course. Um, and then ultimately there's a vote um, on the Senate floor to pass or to uh, not pass uh, a piece of legislation. That takes time. In fact, it takes a lot of time. Um, sometimes <clears throat> the other way to go about passing a piece of legislation is simply by asking for unanimous consent. In other words, let's skip all of the uh, argument and debate. Um, a senator can go to the floor and say, I ask unanimous consent to pass this bill. Uh, and if there are no objections, to that request, the bill passes. Um, it's usually, the process is usually reserved for um, non-controversial bills, or perhaps in this case, when there's simply no time left to address it through regular order. The hotline process um, was created by the Senate in order to expedite the unanimous consent process. So, and all it is really is it's um, the Senate offices who are, who are sponsoring the bill. They fill out an electronic form uh, explaining what the bill is. It's emailed out to each Senate office and with a, you know, an alert essentially saying, 
Hey guys, we're uh, we're going to ask for unanimous consent on this bill. Does anybody have an objection? And that that notice um, is in place roughly 24 hours or so. Um, it's a way to sort of vet out exactly who may be objecting to the bill or who has questions about the bill. Um, and it allows the sponsors of the bill to address those questions and those objections. Because remember, ultimately the Senate is asking for unanimous consent. So it only takes one Senator to stop that process. So the hotline is really just a, a preemptive way to figure out who might have questions or opposition to the bill. Perfect. And can we maybe get into, um, you know, there have been various bills being passed through um, and do you have any insight into what some of those were or are and, and sort of what the outcome might be? So clarify, um, which, I mean, which bills are you, which bills do you mean? Well, I've heard several things from different people. Um, I've even heard that there's a, a bill, a drafted bill that the price might come down to 700,000. Um, oh. I've heard various things. So maybe, um, do you have some insight into what those are and if, if they hold any kind of you know, foundation with what's going on right now? Sure, I understand, sorry. Um, those drafts uh, have no impact on the conversation. Um, the bill that has been hotlined, um, the, the Grassley-Leahy bill uh, that we're talking about does not address uh, investment amounts whatsoever. Um, the only things that that bill addresses are A, what have been referred to as integrity measures, which we can talk about if you guys like, um, and, the, and a reauthorization timeline for the program. In this case, it would be for two and a half years. Um, so any other bills that have been discussed or floated or any other legislative language that's been uh, suggested that would address um, investment amounts, like to 700,000, for example, those are not on the table um, and the legislative branch is not considering them. Aaron, uh, we're, we're, uh, I really want to jump in and you know go over you know the history of the various different legislations and how we got to this point because uh, I think our audience really is hungry and wants to wants to really find out how how we got to this point. But before we jump to that, I, I really want to ask you uh, you know just to, to to really explain to the audience what this ruling this 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 um, federal ruling means. You know, if the EB five program expires tomorrow, essentially, or at the end of the month, thirtieth whether you know the program expires a 500,000 program or a $900,000 program it shouldn't make a difference it's still expired until only per, the only group that has the power to to reauthorize the program is congress unless congress reauthorizes the program is dead so uh, you know I want to I want to um, have you talk to the audience about that but also you know today mechanically a lot of investors and agents you know in Vietnam and India have called me and they believe as of today they can go and accept investors legally under the $500,000 level. But can you talk about that? Can you talk about what the remand process means and what, uh, what the, the agency would have to do for that 500,000 to take effect essentially today or tomorrow before the 30th expiration? Um, I can talk about it. I need to be really careful uh, because I actually don't know the answers uh, to your questions. And I think that's part of 
a lot of the anxiety that people are feeling. I don't think anybody really knows the answer right now. I think uh, if I was to opine, I would say technically speaking, the regulations uh, that are in place now following the court's ruling uh, place the investment amounts uh, at 500,000. Um, mechanically, however, that, that begs a lot of questions. Um, for example, uh, I know that um, regional centers have um, offering documents that don't reflect that amount. I mean, it will take time. I'm assuming, I don't, I don't run a regional center, but I'm assuming that regional centers would need time to adjust to that new investment amount um, in order to legally make an appropriate offer at $500,000. Um, so just because the regulations say it's $500,000, uh, I don't know how quickly the industry shifts to actually using that, that number. That, that, the answer to that question is definitely above my pay grade. As far as the remand is concerned. Again, that's another sort of unknown. Um, the court remanded the remanded um, the the matter. It said back to the Department of Homeland Security. In other words, it basically said the regulations that you guys finalized in 2019 are no longer valid. Go figure it out. Um, the remand now that it's been remanded back to the Department of Homeland Security. I mean the. the uh, the question is, what exactly will they do? I, I'm, I am firmly convinced, and I may be proven wrong, but I'm firmly convinced that the administration, meaning uh, the Secretary of Homeland Security, uh, Mayorkas, as well as the President of the United States, are committed to the $900,000 level. In other words, they're committed to the previously promulgated regulations. Just because the regulations were finalized in order, in other words, signed off by the wrong person, which is what the court said, which is why they're invalidated. I don't see, I, I don't see that as a long-term stop to what the administration feels is the right policy. They will find a way to, to reinstitute appropriately the $900,000 level. I just don't know how, and I don't know how long that will take. Um, add to that, I don't know how long it takes for regional centers to adjust to the $500,000 level, nor do I know how those two timelines intersect. Um, you know, I, I would feel pretty bad for a regional center that goes through all the trouble of, you know, reissuing its offering statements at a $500,000 level, maybe that takes two months to figure out how to do correctly, only to have the Department of Homeland Security find a way to reinstate the regulations back to $900,000. And that means the regional center's got to back, go back to all the investors it's been talking to and readjust everything again, back up to the, to the higher level. It, there's just a lot of unknowns. And so in some instances, I think investors are going to jump at the chance. I think, you know, this may, I, I know that people are already promoting this $500,000 amount around the world. So I think some investors are going to jump at that. I would just urge caution. Um, I think other investors are probably going to wait and see how things shake out. 
but I don't know. I, I, I honestly, I wish I had an answer, but um, what I can tell you for sure is that the Department of Homeland Security will address this. I believe they will put it back at $900,000. I don't believe that this process of the court's decision and the administration's actions on the $900,000 decision impacts the legislative process whatsoever. They are all separate things. Um, and we're just going to have to wait and see how things, how things filter out. To say otherwise would be misleading, I think. So Aaron, you know, um, um, you know we're, we're regional centers and we operate regional centers and developers and uh, Priya is on the fundraising side. So, you know, we're very interested in 500,000. If we can get, you know, the, the investment of back to 500,000, there'll be a huge amount of more investors than we have currently at the $900,000 level. But to, to Priya's point, I think there have been several different iterations of, of bills that have been introduced either by the House or the, by, by the Senate. And, you know, when, when the EB-5 program initially passed in, in the 1990, I think 1990, Ted Kennedy, who was kind of the, the you know, the champion of EB-5 initially, you know, we were kind of copying the Canadian program back then. They always intended for the program to be a million dollar program. And with a caveat that if you invested in a certain area, targeted employment area, that you could invest in 500000 They never imagined that it would just be an only $500,000 program for the next 30 years. They assumed it was a million dollar program back then. And we imagine inflation that's happened since 1990 till today. So the reality was they, they always intended for this to be a million dollar program. And they thought maybe a small uh, you know, subset of investors would come in in, in these you know, um, targeted employment areas of 500,000. And then also in, in, in a lot of discussions with the Senate and the House, uh, they have expressed that you know, even 900,000, they thought it was too low, that the program would always be a million dollar program. Maybe you can weigh, on, uh, weigh in on that. And then uh, also uh, talk about what it would mean if the program expires uh, on June 30th, but essentially, uh, I mean, June 24th tomorrow, because that's the last day Senate's in session. If you don't mind maybe jumping into that. That's a very loaded question, but, uh, but if you could weigh in on that. Um, I'm not even sure where to begin there, Abteen. That was a, that, that was a, that was a long question. I, I think that, um, you know, if the program expires, <clears throat> um, the Department of Homeland Security will need to, in all likelihood, reissue guidance with regards to how it will handle I-526 applications and frankly, any, any other um, applications and forms that pertain to the EB-5 program, the 924s for the regional centers, the 924As, all of it. In the past, when the program has lapsed, um, the guidance, at least from 2018, the guidance has simply said that uh, the Department of Homeland Security will hold applications in abeyance for a reasonable amount of time, right? Um, in all likelihood, believing that since these previous lapses were tied to the appropriations process, um, because that's where our authorization has always been, has been on, on spending bills that absolutely must pass in order for the government to receive money to do its thing. That a reasonable amount of time, nobody really cared about what it was. I mean, a reasonable amount of time was whatever 
amount of time it took for Congress to get its act together and pass the spending bill so that the Department of Homeland Security had its money to defend the homeland. So there was never really any question that the Department of Homeland Security's spending bill would never pass. It would, and therefore so would our authorization. I would consider that a lapse. Um, and the words that we use here, I know have meaning. And so I, I, I use them with caution. If the program is not reauthorized uh, this time, uh, I would categorize it not as a lapse, but as an expiration. Uh, that doesn't mean that the program can't be brought back. Um, in fact, I, I, I'm, I'm sure that all of us would work our tails off to make sure that it is. But I do think it's important for us to understand the difference between what has happened in the past as a lapse and what will happen now, because now we're no longer tied to that must pass authorization bill. Now it's, it's something that um, we're out on an island, so to speak. So I believe the appropriate word to use is expire. So back to your original question, what happens after that? Um, again, we don't really know. As I said, precedent from the Department of Homeland Security is to hold applications in abeyance uh, until things get figured out for a reasonable amount of time. The next step after the expiration or lapse or how, whatever, however you want to qualify it uh, is unknown. So we don't know what a reasonable amount of time is. Um, and we don't know what the Department of Homeland Security can do. We don't know to what extent they will be able to devote resources to a program that no longer has an authorization. Um, all of that will light a fire under the industry to be sure to, to find a way to reinstitute the program. Uh, but we don't know what that process will look like. We don't know how the political landscape will shift. Um, so again, it just comes back to uh, a lot of a lot of unknowns. Um, I have every confidence. I, I'm I am cautiously optimistic that we're going to be just fine. Honestly, I, I think that everybody in the Senate understands the value of this program. I think they understand what it means to the United States. I think they understand what it means to immigrant investors who are putting a hell of a lot on the line. Um, I think everybody has a clear understanding about that. I think that what we're seeing in Congress right now, some people would call it maybe politics as usual. I don't, I'm, I, I, I'm pulling my hair out, but um, I think everybody understands what's at stake. And I'm, I'm optimistic that, uh, you know, at the end of the day, um, we'll be okay. We're going to be just fine. And hopefully we won't have to discuss uh, at any more length, uh, the nature of the question that you asked as to what happens next. Has there been um, any discussion? Because I know one of the questions I get on a daily basis from investors who have already invested, you know, last year, the year before, um, they're worried about obviously, you know, what's going to happen to their applications. So I know you mentioned that they're going to hold the applications for a while, but has there been any discussion in terms of grandfathering in um, for applications that were filed before in case there is some kind of expiry on the program? Not to my knowledge. <clears throat> um, I know that uh, there was a suggestion that 
grandfathering be included in legislation that would reauthorize the program. Uh, that request was denied. I mean, it was not included in the legislation, but I was always sort of confused as to how that language would work in any event. If the program, if the bill doesn't, if a bill to reauthorize the program has language in it that grandfathers applicants and the bill doesn't pass, Right. But neither does the language that would grandfather the applicants. Yeah. Um, so it was a little confusing to me. Um, the suggestion was raised and then uh, it hasn't been it hasn't been picked up since. And I know that it's not actually in the text that's being hotlined right now. Okay. So, Aaron, I think, um, you know, we've been trying to get a, a new EB-5 legislation reauthorized for the past seven years. I think you've been helping us from my USA standpoint in the last three or four years. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're at a, you know, the 25th hour of a bill potentially happening, which, you know, we have three sponsors in the, in the Senate side and 17 mm -hmm. sponsors on the House side. First time ever in the last seven years or really in the last 30 years that we've had a reauthorization of EB-5 where we have had identical bills in the House and the Senate. Um, I think a lot I mean, I've been hearing a lot of misinformation that this is somehow a Republican bill and it's, you know, Republicans don't like immigration, so they're trying to kill immigration. But the bill is you know, bipartisan. In fact, two of the co-sponsors on the Senate side are Democrats. In fact, Senator Coons and Senator Leahy. Senator Coons was the replacement of uh, President Biden, very close friend of President Biden's. Uh, on the House side, we have, you know, it's split down the middle on the 17 co-sponsors. In fact, we have more, one more Democratic sponsor, I think, than, than the Republican sponsor. Maybe... If you could just uh, touch on that. And then um, my next question, the follow-up is, I don't think our audience understands the amount of work that you and other uh, stakeholders um, spend on a daily basis to get, get us to a point where we are. Maybe just talk about that a little bit, because I think uh, for, our, for our listeners, I think they'll be interested to know, you know, on a daily basis, what do you guys do and how you're in the trenches every day fighting the fight to get this program reauthorized? The bill is bipartisan, to your point. It's also bicameral. Um, there has not been a reauthorization effort that has included a bicameral um, effort. In other words, the same bill introduced on the House side as it has been on, on the Senate side. Um, Senator Coons and Senator Leahy, uh, Democrats, Senator Grassley, Republican. To me, that is bipartisanship. And to your point on the House side, I actually think it was the, I think we have, I think we now have 10 Democrats and 15 Republicans uh, on the House side. I'd have to go back and check, but clearly bipartisan. And interestingly as well, um, there's a wide spread in the spectrum, the political spectrum on, on, in, on, among our co-sponsors. Um, one of our co-sponsors is a Congresswoman from California. Her name is Katie Porter. Um, she represents the 45th District of California, I believe, and she's seen as, generally speaking, a very progressive member of Congress. Um, we also have uh, a gentleman named Guy Reschenthaler from Pennsylvania, um, a Republican who is seen as a very conservative member of Congress. Uh, he comes from a very red pro-Trump district. So it's not just bicameral and bipartisan. 
it's like really bipartisan. I mean, to have to have someone like Katie Porter on the same bill as someone like Guy Rushenthaler, I think says a lot about the program itself. I think it speaks to members' uh, recognition of what the program does for their communities and what it does for the United States. And you're right. Um, as far as I understand, I've been with the association, like you said, about three and a half years now. I, I certainly have never known legislation to have reached this point. Um, and I don't think it ever has during the, the program's history. Typically, the reauthorization effort for this has always been sort of behind closed doors. It's been you know, tucked away, as we talked about on these appropriations bills, and it's been sort of pro forma and very difficult to get change and so forth. That's just not the case this time. This time, it's very much out in the open and um, very much bipartisan. And to your other question, I mean, it has taken a lot of work. Um, folks like yourself and other members of the IIUSA board, um, our lobbyists, um, as well as our, our lobbyists uh, from, from other companies, um, all working together um, on a daily basis uh, for many hours each day. Uh, to, to, to adjust the, the nuance of messaging on a daily basis. Um, and then the other part of it is just plain education. I think many people, I don't know if they would be surprised or not, but I mean, many members of Congress don't know what EB-5 is. I mean, they may have hundreds of millions of dollars worth of investment in their district. And because it's such a small and somewhat segregated program within the construct of immigration itself. Really, it's an economic development program, not an immigration program. So it's such a small program in the broader construct that members don't really even understand what it is. There's always an assumption that uh, if they do know what it is, there's an assumption that um, it's primarily uh, for, for uh, Chinese immigrant investors. Um, there's an assumption that it must be bad. We always hear about fraud. Um, a lot of stereotypes uh, and misinformation about the program is out there. So we have spent an inordinate amount of time um, educating every member of Congress that we can speak to about what the program actually is, what it actually does, what it actually means to them and their districts and their constituents so that they understand that when the time comes to vote to reauthorize the program, they're not reauthorizing a program that's somehow bad for them or, or they're not furthering some sort of de facto fraudulent program. It's exactly the opposite. I mean, it is a job creating juggernaut um, that, that, that is leveraging um, dollars that are non-tax dollars. So a lot of our work has been just education, a lot of shoe leather in explaining to people what the program is and why it's worth paying attention to. And we've been successful. I mean, the fact that we have 25 co-sponsors in the house and our meetings continue today uh, says a lot about the progress that we've made. And, you know, knock on wood, if we're able to, to reauthorize this program, we now have, um, you know, no fewer than 25, 6, 20, close to 30 members of Congress on record supporting this program. And, um, you know, we would surely go back to them to help improve the program further. 
more visas and whatever else the program needs to, to strengthen. So it's a lot of work, um, but it's work worth doing. You've done a great job. And, you know, Priya and I, this is close to us because, you know, we're both immigrants. Our families immigrated from Iran and India, you know, to the United States and Canada. So this is not only important because it's our business, but it's also important because there's, you know, for every one of these visas, there's actually a real family that's affected by this. And if the program were to die tomorrow or, or on the 30th, people overnight will lose their immigration benefits. And that's disaster. And I think a lot of the stakeholders just don't really understand that. And I think, you know, they just assume that, you know, Congress is going to kick it down the road, but we know that that's not true. Maybe you want to weigh on that and I'll yield back to, to Priya. Sorry, I've been monopolizing most of the questions. Okay. Um, you know, the interesting dynamic that Senator Grassley and Senator Leahy have set up is that uh, there is no kicking the can down the road. Um, a problem in the EB-5 community, and I don't think we can stick our head in the sand about it, has been fraud. I mean, investors... Um, investors uh, make investments knowing that they're doing so at a risk. That's the nature of an investment. Um, but they certainly seem to be at more of a risk than, say, I would in making an investment uh, because many of the investors don't speak English. They may not have a comprehensive understanding of uh, real estate transactions in the United States. Uh, and there are people who take advantage of those, of those situations. And it's happened more than once. What Senator Grassley and Senator Leahy um, are, feel passionately about is the need to put a stop to those sorts of um, situations. And so rather than set up a situation in which the can is simply kicked down the road and, 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 and uh, the status quo is allowed to continue and continue and continue, they've basically laid down a very hard marker. They've drawn a line in the sand and they've said, this can no longer continue. We can no longer allow immigrant investors who are putting as much as they are on the line to be defrauded. And therefore, the integrity measures that we are insisting on must be part of the program or the program will not be kicked down the road. I mean, it's a really, in some ways it's patronizing, but in, in other ways, it's something that the community and the industry absolutely needs. And so the legislative lines that have been drawn for better or worse at this point, disallow that kick the can down the road. Senator Grassley has been quoted in several newspapers at this point saying that he would not agree to a simple clean extension is what they're calling it. Um, he simply won't allow that to happen. He insists that these integrity measures and protections for investors are part of the legislation. It's a good thing, um, but it does entail a bit of brinksmanship um, which brings me back to my cautiously optimistic comment uh, from earlier. You know, we have today and we will have tomorrow morning to be sure that the Senate acts um, and to, to, to assure these integrity measures and investor protections. Uh, and then we, we jump over to the House side to finish the process, finish the process over there. 
can you talk to us a little bit more, just elaborate a little bit more on what these um, proposed integrity measures are, um, what they're proposing to put in place that would protect investors? Sure. Um, I don't have the bill in front of me, but uh, you know, just off the top of my head, I know that <clears throat> if an investor, for example, um, finds himself or herself part of a project that itself has been deemed fraudulent, you know, that uh, the developers, for example, for lack of a better phrase, have been caught with their hand in the cookie jar, misappropriating dollars, for example. The Department of Homeland Security at that point has the ability to come in and, and stop the project, stop the program. They have the ability to um, essentially kick a regional center out of the program. In those instances, what happens to the investors' dollars who through no fault of their own have been caught up in this mess that's been created by someone here in the United States that is part of this development team? Well, what this bill would do would allow an investor in that position to withdraw their dollars, to get their money back and, and reinvest it into a different project in the United States. And most importantly, it would not force that investor to lose their place in the immigration uh, application process. They would not lose their place in line um, because it's just not right for someone who through no fault of their own is swept up in, in someone else's wrongdoing. Um, other integrity measures sort of fall on the side of the regional centers with some increased oversight. So this was a big debate uh, between, the, between IIUSA and, and, and the drafters of the bill. Of course, we were not that interested in having you know, uh, regional centers business models be completely turned upside down. Uh, there are costs to that. Uh, and there's a cost benefit analysis that needed to be placed because regional centers are you know, the functionary of the economic development that this whole program is intended to, to allow. So if you have too much oversight, it sort of bogs down the process and they're not able to actually um, facilitate the economic development. So we didn't want too much oversight, but we did recognize we needed some oversight in order to clean up what, we're, what I'm just describing. So we came to a very good balance. I think that um, the integrity measures as they apply to uh, regional centers now include things um, uh, like increased transparency. So for example, um, someone like you uh, oversees um, a, a broker dealer, someone who is working with investors um, would have to disclose fees that you would earn um, and they would have to be disclosed to the investors so that the investors know how much of the money they're investing is actually going to fees as opposed to the project itself. I mean, that is a determining factor in how a person makes an investment. Um, so those are, those are a, a couple of examples and, and hopefully they sort of illustrate the general nature of what the integrity measures are intended to do. They are intended to clean up the program, um, make sure that the bad apples don't have an opportunity to continue doing business um, and to provide assurances to investors um, and to protect good faith investors. And I think those are valuable, very valuable. It's a, it's a sign that the program's sort of growing up a little bit. Um, 
which is good. Right. I mean, some of, some of the things I think they're in the bill, for example, that you have to have construction monitoring. And what does that mean? I mean, the old days, you know, you, you hear that, you know, a, a regional center raised a couple hundred million and the regional center founders were buying yachts and private jets with it. So having construction draws means that, you know, as you, you know, spend $10 million on concrete, you get those receipts, you send it to the bank, you send it to the regional center, and then you do a draw. They release that money that you've already spent. So you don't have the option or you don't have the opportunity or, you know, the ability even to be able to steal that money and go do things that are non-construction and not part of the program, uh, not part of the project. And those things are, I think, really important. I think uh, some of us, we already do this as best practices, but to have, you know, the, the you know, this Congress legislate that, I think it's important. You know, other things, you know, having a fund administrator, not having traditional escrow accounts, or in some cases, you know, regional centers don't even have escrow. They just take the money and put it in the project. Those are, again, integrity measures that I think are, are part of the program. And I think a lot of people do agree with those integrity measures, but there's definitely a split. And I think uh, I want to jump into the, you know, the beginnings of how these dif- differences opinions started. I mean, for our audience, I think it's important to understand how do you get a senator who is a you know, Republican from Iowa, Senator Grassley, and a Democrat from, uh, from Vermont, Senator Leahy, on the same side of the, you know, on a bill. And then you have Senator Schumer and Senator Corner, Republican, Democrat, on the other side. And is this been traditionally a Republican versus Democrat debate, or has there been another reason? Maybe you can elaborate on that. Well, first of all, let me say this, that the back to, I will address that, but I mean, back to the integrity measures. um, uh, And and I don't intend this as, as anything shameless here, but it's, it's worth noting that the integrity measures are intended to address organizations that are not like Brevet. Um, They're there, you know, best practices are something that um, organizations need to have and some do it a hell of a lot better than others. Um, So it's really the folks who are a bit more fly by night. Uh, I think that Senator Grassley and Leahy are intending to, to target or those who might be so big that they feel that they can do whatever the heck they want. Um, With regards to Grassley and Leahy, it is an interesting debate. I don't think it's Democrat and Republican at all. We talked about how the bill is bipartisan, and that's important, um, especially in this climate uh, in the United States with regards to immigration. Um, unfortunately, in my opinion, you know, the climate is still pretty toxic with regards to immigration. And so um, it's important for us to be able to demonstrate that insofar as this is an immigration program, I don't believe it is. I believe it's an economic development program, but it is an EB-5 visa program that we want to demonstrate bipartisanship, and we certainly have. But the program itself is more of a debate between urban programs and rural programs, which is why you have folks like Grassley and Leahy from rural states, uh, sometimes on the other side of the table from gentlemen like um, uh, Senator Cornyn and Senator Schumer, again, Democrat and Republican, who uh, have rural communities in their states for sure, but are, are, are very frequently paying close attention to the urban interests of real estate, real estate development. There is nothing wrong with that. Um, it's healthy. It's good. Um, we need to have those sort of debates and balanced um, approaches. But it is interesting to point out that this particular program is not about Democrat and Republican. It's about uh, making sure that 
the investments that immigrant investors are willing to make are provided to the most effective areas or the areas that can be impacted the most in the United States. Um, not just urban, even though that's a very attractive place for immigrants investors to place their money, but also to rural, which is where the United States needs to have more of an investment, arguably. Um, so it's a very interesting dynamic from a public policy perspective. Uh, if you're talking about non-tax investments as a governing authority, where do you want those investments to be? Where are they going to do the most good? Um, and you need to balance that with where the investors want to put it. Um, so it's been a very interesting and, and healthy and good debate. Um, I will give a plug to uh, a colleague of ours. Uh, you may know her, Alex Loveless, who is chairperson of the Rural Alliance. Um, IIUSA has worked very closely with the Rural Alliance and making sure that we're able to represent their, their interests um, or, or help them represent their interests. But we're also very closely tied to organizations um, like Brevet and other um, companies that are that are focused in urban communities. I, I see the background behind you in New York there. So, um, so it's in Europe. Conversation. What's that? That's how it's in Europe behind us, actually. Is it really? Yeah. Okay. Or on this side. So it's an interesting debate. That is interesting. I'm not, I've actually not thought of it being a rural versus urban type of debate at all. So that's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, when I came to the program, it was made clear, and I understand why, that investors are much more willing and interested to put their money into something that they recognize. Um, and New York, Hudson Yards, other pro projects in New York, or Miami, or Dallas, or Los Angeles, or San Francisco, or Seattle. I mean, these are, these are places that um, immigrant investors recognize and, and believe correctly that can provide a return on their investment. They don't really think of Burlington, Vermont, or Ames, Iowa, or um, North Dakota, or, or any you know, places like that, because uh, even we in the United States sometimes consider these places flyover country, right? But the truth of the matter is, is that from a public policy perspective, investment in these communities is very necessary. And furthermore, they can be very profitable for investors. I mean, when you consider um, the development of, for example, ethanol plants in the Midwest, uh, you know, um, processing plants that takes corn um, and corn byproducts and turns them into ethanol, um, that can be a very profitable endeavor. Um, steel mills, for example, in places like Arkansas, um, can be very profitable, but I mean, no one would, no one in, I don't know, Mumbai, for example, that's not their knee-jerk reaction to say, oh, uh, yes, my investment for an EB-5 program, uh, I, I'm willing, you know, I can't wait to see it go to work in, in Arkansas or North Dakota. It's just not something that people typically think of. But but the purpose of the program in the United States is economic development. Um, and so, so policymakers wisely ask themselves the question, where do, should we encourage this economic development? Uh, and so you get a bit of a 
back and forth between between urban priorities and rural priorities. And again, I think that that conversation is healthy and it's and it's something that we will continue to have. You know, I think in the past, uh, Senator Schumer has introduced a bill before. I think Senator Graham has introduced a bill. You know, Congressman Amade out of Nevada has introduced a bill. You know, we're, we're agnostic. We don't really care, you know, if it's a, a bill that's introduced by Senator Grassley or Leahy, if it's a bill introduced by Senator Schumer or Corner on the other side. The, the reality of it is that, you know, we're six, six days away from the program lapsing and sunsetting and putting many immigrant families' lives in jeopardy because, you know, they're in limbo. They're not sure if they can continue their immigration. They're not sure they're going to be able to get a green card. They've done what they were supposed to do that, you know, Congress told them to be in this. 500,000 and later 900,000, then you, you know, you qualify and then there's that, that could all be in jeopardy. And the reality is that there aren't any bills right now by, you know, Senator Schumer or Senator Corner or Congressman Amadek today that we could vote on or that, you know, members of Congress could vote on that could re-extend the program. The only game in town today is a bipartisan bill by Senator Leahy and Senator Grassley and Coons and, you know, 25 co-sponsors on the House side. And that's the only option. It's that option or the program expiring. And I think that's a reality a lot of investors and a lot of a lot of our colleagues in the business don't understand. They just think that, oh, you know, it's been reauthorized and kicked down the red road, you know, 21 times. It'll just happen again. I don't understand that the method, you know, the method of that happening is it would have to be part of continued resolution, which is not. And Senator Leahy has the power to put it back or not put it on the continued resolution with him. And Senator Grassi, as, as you expressed earlier, have said they will not put it as part of continued resolution. So best case scenario, the program lapses and maybe in October they can do something and add it. So what happens to investors between now and October? Maybe you, you can um, you know, tell our audience a little bit about that and what, you know, what that would mean in terms of lawsuits and in terms of not happy investors and also people losing faith in the program. You know, maybe elaborate on that. So you're right. Um, the Grassley-Leahy bill, and in the House, it's uh, the bill has been introduced by uh, Representative Stanton from Phoenix and his Republican colleague, uh, Representative Fitzpatrick from just outside of Philadelphia. Those bills, they're they're identical, uh, so you could call it the bill. Is the only is the only game in town, and for quite some time, um, there has been and there continues to be uh, opposition. To that bill, and and the reasons for the opposition uh, include um, well issues with some of the integrity measures. Uh, some people feel that they are overreaching. I disagree. Um, there are concerns with the bill because it doesn't include um, uh, uh, language pertaining to investment amounts. Um, that's a very sticky, contentious issue. And, and in years past, addressing that issue and other issues like the definition of TEA have always mired the reauthorization process down. It's always ended uh, poorly uh, for the EB-5 community. Um, so there are those, however, who still feel that those issues should have been included um, in the Grassley-Leahy bill, and so they oppose it. So to your point, however, um, traditionally, if, if there is enough opposition to a bill or if there's reason enough to, to um, persuade someone else to introduce an opposing bill with different ideas, 
then uh, typically champions of that position would be successful in convincing Senator Smith from wherever to introduce um, a competing piece of legislation. However, that never happened. It, it, it never manifested, not on the House side and not on the Senate side, despite the reasons to oppose the Grassley-Leahy bill no other member of Congress, House or Senate, saw fit to introduce um, a separate EB-5 reauthorization bill. It just, no one ever did it. Um, it. That begs questions as to the arguments for opposing this bill, but we won't get into that. It goes to your point, Abteen, where we're now left with one, one option. There's one game in town. It's um, S-831 on the Senate side, HR 2901 on the House side. And if you want this program to continue, that's it. You have to vote for this bill. You have to pass this reauthorization package. Um, what happens uh, to investors if the bill doesn't pass and, and the program expires or lapses, or like we said before, pick your word? Um, that's another unknown. I think quite certainly you will have investors immediately scratching their heads and wondering if they have lost their place in line um, for, their, for their, uh, their immigration status, their visa. Um, what that concern prompts them to do, I can't say for certain. I think you can assume that some, some immigrant investors will ask for their money back um, if that happens, uh, I, I don't know to what extent regional centers or developers are in a position to do that. Um, to your point, it could cause a lot of confusion and stress um, that, 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 that IIUSA would immediately begin addressing in an effort to, to somehow bring the program back. Um, but it's another unknown that we hope to avoid. Um, and and this, this opportunity, this podcast, very timely in an effort to get the message out and, and help people understand what we're doing to make that happen. But just a lot of unknowns at this point. It's also, I think it's worth noting as well, <clears throat> some people have accused um, Senator Grassley who has been painted uh, by many as sort of a, an ogre, you know, the specter of the community who wants to kill the program. Um, and I can certainly see why people would think that. I mean, Senator Grassley uh, has some very ardent views. Um, he doesn't necessarily think highly of the program, which is why he's so insistent on these integrity reforms. But I think it's a gross mischaracterization to say that he is in any way acting in bad faith, that he in any way wants to proactively kill the program. Um, he and his colleague, Senator Leahy, uh, back to your point, Abtin, are the only ones who have kept their shoulder to the grindstone. They're the only ones who have put in the long hours of debate and drafting. They're the only ones who have suffered the slings and arrows of opposition to try to improve the program, strengthen the program, reauthorize the program. There's no one else out there doing the work. They're doing the work. They deserve kudos for it. 
um, and we all should recognize their priorities in the effort. And their priorities are the protection of good faith investors and in, in, in oversight to, to make the program more transparent. Who's against that? Who, who, why would you be against that? I totally agreed. So I've been involved in EB-5 since late 2011, early 2012, and I think Priya has been just as long. Um, you know, it, it used to be, you know, the, the pilot program that was enacted in 1993, every three years it expired and it would go, you know, in front of the house. And I remember the, you know, in 2012, I remember it was like, I don't know, and the house was like 433 to three was the votes of three people that voted against it. And, the, you know, in the Senate, it was 97 to three. And, you know, it was basically a rubber stamp. Every three years, we get reauthorized. And, and I think one of the realities of the program was in the early days, in the early 1990s, it wasn't very popular. People didn't really know it. Not a lot of real estate developers or other project, uh, you know, uh, developers were using it to, to, uh, to, you know, finance projects. You know, but it slowly started kind of increasing in popularity. But, you know, it's, it's, it's important to know. I think one of the early adopters of this program were real estate developers, smaller real estate developers in California. So for many, 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 many years, the majority of the money in the program went to the state of California and many other states hadn't really figured it out. A lot of real estate developers hadn't figured it out. It wasn't uh, you know, uh, um, prevalent and real estate developers had all kinds of other options for financing their projects. And then you know, in, in, the, in the downturn in 2007, as, as developers were looking for alternative sources of capital, it started really becoming popular in states like Texas, Florida, and New York and other states started using it. And then it became where, you know, as you mentioned, a lot of immigrant communities uh, and a lot of immigrant investors want to go to places with large immigrant communities like New York and L.A. that have large uh, immigrant communities. And, and I think since like 2013 and 14, it became where more than 65 percent of the money was going to to one state, New York, and, you know, 60, 65 percent. And this time around, I think people, members of the House and Senate started paying attention and more notably, one, one developer in particular that was developed in Hudson Yard, something like $3 billion went to that one particular developer. And then all of a sudden, all the headlines started, you know, ringing and Senators Leahy and Senator Grassley and others were, were wondering why one particular developer is getting more funds into their one project than several states combined. And I think that's when the, you know, the disagreements uh, came about. But it's really interesting, you know, you have uh, a senator, you know, from Vermont and Iowa, they're Republican, Democrat on one side of the debate, and then you have the more populous uh, states being presented on the on the other side of the debate. Um, but 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 you know, who who are, who are the people that are opposing this bill? Who are the people that are trying to kill this bill, and and why? And can you maybe talk on that, or you know, speculate on that if you would like? I can try. Uh, I always want to be careful here as well. Um, the there is a, a another association or coalition um, called the EB5IC, EB5 Investment or Investors Coalition. Um, they, um, they're comprised of a small handful of companies and interests that represent the opposition and the reasons for opposition that I had mentioned earlier, concerns that the um, Integrity measures are overreaching <clears throat> in some instances and concerns as well about what is not in the bill as opposed to what is in the bill. You know, the, the bill doesn't address TEAs and investment amounts, for example. Um, for the record, um, I believe the integrity measures are not overreaching. I believe the integrity measures were well thought out, um, debated and vetted thoroughly with 
uh, the bigger industry representative, IIUSA, and we agreed to them with Grassley and Leahy as we developed the legislation. And I understand that the the integrity measures are um, uh, new and represent change in, in business models sometimes, uh, but they're necessary for the longevity of the program, to tell you the truth. The other issues as to what is not in the bill, <clears throat> investment amounts, TEA definitions, et cetera, et cetera. I will also say for the record that IIUSA is not opposed to addressing them. We never have been opposed to addressing them. We do believe that um, investment amounts need to be discussed. We do believe that there will always be room for discussion around the definition of TEA. We do believe that there needs to be a really fervent and sincere effort to address the backlog of applicants. We believe that we need to address processing times. We believe that we need to increase the number of visas. We believe that the derivative count um, needs to be formally addressed to allow more investor visas. It's not that IIUSA opposes these concepts or opposes the way that those issues and conversations can improve the program. What we've recognized from day one is that these conversations are contentious. They are typically drawn out. They are very detailed and sticky and politically sensitive because you have those debates between rural and urban areas. And IAUSA represents everybody you know, across the country. And when Senator Grassley and Senator Leahy wisely decided that in order to reauthorize the program and provide the program longevity and stability in the marketplace by saying, this program is not going to be year to year to year, it's going to be multiple years. Um, but we're not going to address the contentious issues because they are not politically viable before this program expires. IIUSA recognized not that we shouldn't address those issues, but that we can't address them now in order to pass the bill that needs to be passed. Those discussions were just not politically viable. <clears throat> we need more time to get together and to truly vet and come up with a better game plan. And a lot of things have changed you know, uh, over, over time as well. We have a new administration, for example. So the opposition to the bill is, that overreach argument, what's not in the bill argument, I think IIUSA is in a smart position. Um, we 100% support the integrity measures as written. We don't want to see them changed. Um, and although we want to address things like investment amounts, we also understand that if you're going to try to do it now, you're going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You're not going to get a program at all. So it begs the question, who, who, who among those in the EB-5IC um, are opposing uh, the bill for those reasons and why? <clears throat> um, you know, I, 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 uh, I can't say why anybody is opposing them. I can tell you that Senator uh, Schumer, um, uh, the majority leader, convened a very large uh, meeting of stakeholders um, Abdeen, you were there. Uh, I was there. Um, we also had other members of uh, the IIUSA board um, and other representatives from New York because Senator Schumer. 
from New York. Uh, so we had them there. And I believe just about everybody from the EB5IC was also on the call. Um, and those individuals, interestingly, who have repeated the mantra that the program doesn't work for New York, they understand their audience is Mr. Schumer. Um, none of them are from New York. You know, it was very interesting to me to see that you had representatives in the coalition from uh, admittedly across the country, uh, California, Florida, Maryland, China, China. Uh, there, there was an organization there that represents um, Chinese nationals. So China, which is a very interesting political conversation to have, I suppose. Um, nobody from New York. And um, I don't know if that was lost on everybody. It certainly wasn't lost on me. Um, but it is an interesting coalition that has developed. They definitely have uh, political capital to spend, and they've done so. Um, I, I uh, look forward to working with them down the road, assuming that we do have a program to improve further. Um, and I think it's fair to say that there's a difference of opinion as to how we get there right now. And um, I think it's a shame that a small group of organizations um, is holding up progress for the entire program. My, my personal opinion. Aaron, I agree with you. I think, you know, whether it's IAUSA or IC, the Investment Coalition, I think we all want the same thing. We want the program to work. We want the program to, you know, go back to its, you know, days of glory or, you know, uh, you know more than, you know, 2019 or 2020, which means, you know, softer investment amounts, you know, easier way of processing, less, less wait times and, and uh, you know, investors don't have to sit around and wait for 10 or 15 years to get their residency. I think we all want the same thing, but like you mentioned, the, the part that we disagree on is how do we get there? And that's, you know, we, we all want the best for investors. We all want the best for the program, but, you know, I, I want to ask a question for Priya and I want to, Aaron, to have you weigh in on it. You know, you're, I'm, I'm in New York, you're in, you're in Pennsylvania. Priya is in Dubai right now where, you know, where she lives and that's, that's where she operates. So she's on the forefront that she gets to see investors on a daily basis. And, you know, three or four, you know, when this program first started 30 years ago, there was only one or two countries that had investment migration programs. This, this podcast, it's called the Investment Migration Report. So we talked about not just EB-5, but other programs. Today, there's more than 40 different programs from various different countries. And unfortunately, it's a zero-sum game. The, the, you know, the billions of dollars that were coming here in the United States that were helping economic activity, but more importantly, people were coming here and becoming residents and paying U.S. taxes on their worldwide income. That money's not coming here anymore. And that money is going to various different countries. Like I said, 40 different countries. Priya, maybe you can uh, weigh in on that. Where, where is this money going today? What are the various programs that it's going to? And, and I'd love to hear your point of view on it as well. So there are obviously a lot of new programs that have cropped up in the past couple of years. Um, I don't know, maybe countries and governments looking at the US and Canada as an example of how they've been able to improve their economies by using these types of immigration programs. Um, but some of the ones that are really popular are obviously the EU countries because you know, when you look at the quality of life and the lifestyle, a lot of people look towards the West, like Canada and the US for that security and for that quality of life. But you know, second in line to that is the EU. So programs like Portugal, programs like Spain that offer the golden visas, 
They also have points to them that are positive points in people's eyes. For example, Port the Portugal program has a less stringent requirement on residency in order to get to the passport. Um, the price is relatively the same. It's 500,000 euros to participate in the program, um, even less than that in some circumstances. And same with Spain. So those are other options that people are now looking towards, especially since the price of EB-5 has gone up to 900,000. Those just seem like more affordable options while still providing that security that immigrants are looking for. And, and it's interesting, you know, I think the United States residency and also to become a, you know, a naturalized citizen, which many other countries don't offer, I think it's the most valuable visa. It's the most valuable passport to have. And then you get access to 250 plus, you know, elite universities that the United States has that no other country has, coupled with, you know, how easy it is to start a business and be an entrepreneur, which many investors you know, many immigrants come to the United States and start businesses and become entrepreneurs. There really isn't any other countries that, that could offer what the CB5 program offers. But the challenge is the long wait times. I mean, that's that's kind of the, the, the you know, there, why we're losing so much foreign investment dollars to other countries. There's definitely two challenges. There's the long wait times. I mean, EB5 has gotten so lengthy in terms of people waiting for some kind of status. Um, waiting to make that move. That's number one. And number two, like I said, the price increase has just made it unfortunately not as affordable for some families and they would rather opt for something else where they don't have to invest so much. So I think those are the two major um, barriers or issues when it comes to the EB-5 program if you're comparing them to some of the other EU countries, for example. Aaron, your your thoughts um, on that topic? Well, this program was created as an economic development program. It's a successful economic development program for the United States, and I think it's worth understanding fully that um, it's not the only one in the world. Uh, that there are other programs out there who are successfully doing the same thing and the extent to which the United States is attractive for investors uh, really needs to be balanced with the um, realities that they face in, in uh, coming to the United States. And, um, you know, a wise investor will take everything into consideration. And if there's a program in Portugal um, that offers 80% of what an investor wants, and they're able to, to reach those goals in 18 or 24 months, as opposed to um, coming to the United States where um, they, they may have 99% of what they want, but um, they risk not being able to enter the United States at all, even if they've made an, an appropriate investment, or at the very least, they may have to wait years before they're they're uh, they're provided a visa i don't know there there's their wise investors will take those things into consideration and therefore so too should u.s congress uh, here in the u.s if we are actually going to leverage the ability of the eb5 program to execute economic development which is why it began i i, I think uh, you guys make a very good point 
Aaron, do, do you think invest, you know, regional centers and groups that are actively lobbying to try to stop this, these, these bills from passing, do you think they potentially face liability, you know, maybe class action lawsuits from their existing investors that may lose their immigration benefits? I have no idea. <laughs> I, I, that is something I, I would be unwise to speculate on. I, I think there will be some angry and upset people, um, but I have, I could never speak to um, liability or, or the, the possibility of class action lawsuits. Those conversations are always out there, uh, but I certainly, that, that, that's a question that's above my pay grade. I wouldn't be able to give you a good answer on that. I'm hoping by the time our, our listeners get to listen to this program that everything's solved and we have a five-year reauthorization and, you know, we're working on improving the program to get additional visas and, you know, make it easier on TEAs and make the program, you know, work for everyone. But uh, if, if that hasn't happened, we'd love to have the audience listen to this, to this program and, and, and weigh in on, on, on you know, the, the experts like, like Aaron that are, that are in the forefront you know, talking to members of the House and Senate on a daily basis, and then people like Korea that are talking to investors on a daily basis to, to try to get, you know, um, investors to improve their lives and the lives of the children by immigrating to the U.S. or Canada and other countries. Well, my hat's off to you guys. Um, you know, no matter what, when people listen to this podcast, I think they will have an opportunity to learn a lot. I think you guys have done a really good job at identifying some pretty important issues that will continue to be part of the EB-5 conversation long after tomorrow uh, or the 30th. Um, and uh, you know what, even it, you know what, guys, even if we do get our reauthorization, um, I don't know, I'll have a beer and take a nap, but, but there's a lot more work to be done after that. Uh, and uh the conversation will definitely continue and, and this podcast is a great way to to start it off so my, my hat's off to you guys for doing a great job and putting this together and thank you Aaron, for being our first uh, guest uh, it's, it's been an honor and, and it's been very informative uh, and um, Priya any final thoughts yeah I think I think this is a really exciting time in EB5 there's so much going on um, thank you so much Aaron for for your time today and for being our guest on the show and um, we just look forward to seeing what, what's going to unfold, I guess. Yes, ma'am. I do, too. We will see. Today's going to be a very interesting day. It's, uh, it's 930 on the East Coast here, so uh, things are just getting ginned up, and I'm seeing the emails start to come. So it's going to be an interesting day. Well, thanks, Aaron. Thanks for being here. And we'll let you jump off to answering the hundreds of emails that you getting this morning. My pleasure, guys. Best of luck and look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank, Thank you. you. Sorry. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us on the Investment Migration Report with Priya Malik and Uptim Baziri. We look forward to hosting you on our next episode. To contact the Investment Migration Report, please email Priya Malik at Priya, P-R-E-E-Y-A at stepglobalgroup.com or Uptim Baziri at the Investment Migration Report at gmail.com or connect to our pages on LinkedIn and YouTube. Thank you for listening.